0: It's an opportunity for you to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have in this nation with a heritage of freedom to come together to freely study your Word, proclaim the truth of your Word. Father, we pray for this nation, we pray for our leaders, we pray for our president and his advisors, that there will be those that will somehow, some way, be exposed to the truth, wake up to the truth, and respond to the truth, and that you will make the truth clear to leaders from every level of government, from this uh, local city government all the way up to uh, the national level, and that we it would be very clear what is constitutional, what is not, what is true and what is not, and that uh, it will be very clear uh, that this country needs to follow the path of truth and the path of the law, and the path of the Constitution in order to experience any measure of uh, freedom and blessing. And Father, we just pray that you would make the issues extremely clear to those in power, and that you would restrain those who would seek to do harm to our freedoms, especially freedoms related to the teaching of the Word. Father, we pray tonight as we continue our study that you will uh, make clear to us from your Word that the only way we have a solution in life is from you. The only real solution, the only path of deliverance, whether it's physical, economic, political, or spiritual, is from you. And that only those who call upon your name can ever have any measure of freedom in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Romans 10. Last week I had several people comment that it seemed like I ran out of time. There is no way to teach through this whole section and really hit the key points in an hour. And, and, and it, because of some of the complexities in this passage with some of the exegesis in the passage, it's important to to take some time and take maybe two or three weeks just to lead up to it so people have time to let it soak into their thinking. Because what appears to be on the surface, especially in Romans 10, 9 and 10, what appears to be on the surface, what you've heard, what has sort of been pre-programmed into your uh, tiny little brain over the last years of your life, uh, makes it sound like Romans 10, 9 and 10 is all about how to get into heaven. And that's how it's used by so many people. And if you come from certain backgrounds, that's what you've heard again and again and again. But it it, it doesn't have anything to do with how to get into heaven or a guarantee of heaven or how to get, have eternal life. It, it's much different. In fact, the message in Romans 10, uh, as in Romans 9 and 11, is about Israel. So tonight we're going to finally get through this, these verses. Look at what does it mean to confess uh with the heart, that confession is made unto salvation in Romans 10.10. And what this means is that the the ultimate deliverance of Israel and Gentiles too. This isn't just about God's deliverance of Jews. It's not just about individual salvation. It's also about how God has provided a way for Gentiles to be delivered as well. Just a reminder of the context, Romans nine. Uh, demonstrates that the righteousness of the, or demonstrates the righteousness of God in His rejection of Israel because Israel has rejected God's grace provision. That's the focal point. He's not arbitrarily rejecting them because they're quote not elect. He's rejecting them because they have rejected Him. In Romans ten, the demonstration is that this rejection is based on Israel's corporate rejection of God's word. God's word has been near to them. It has been close to them Uh, throughout their history, yet they have rejected it generationally, from generation to generation. They have killed the prophets. They have rejected the prophets. And because they have neglected and rejected the revelation God gave them, they're going to come under national judgment. And indeed today and for the last 2,000 years, we have seen them under national judgment. And then Romans 11 says, in light of this, it answers the question rather that has God permanently cast away his people? And the answer is no, he still has a plan for national ethnic Israel. So just some things to bring our minds back to where we are this week. We've had a lot of things going on the last, last seven days. We've got some people here who weren't here last week, so we always have to have a little review to make sure we... Uh, are back on target. The key term, first point is the key term in Romans for receiving eternal life is not getting saved. That's American Western evangelicalism, reducing everything to the concept of getting saved and that that equals justification. But for Paul in Romans, justification is how you gain eternal life. It's what happens at that moment that you trust in Christ when you receive redemption and you're regenerate and you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and you're declared righteous. That's justification. Uh, salvation is used for uh, either the entire concept or the end result. It's not a synonym for justification in Romans. Justification is covered in Romans 3.21 to 5.11. Then he moves on to sanctification in the spiritual life. In Romans three twenty-one to five eleven, which is Paul's main focus of justification, his his major treatise. There's some uh, shorter treatises and discussions of justification in Galatians two, but in Romans and in Galatians, where he focuses on justification, he never mentions confessing Jesus as Lord. Uh, belief is the only condition for salvation that our, our justification is based on faith in Christ alone. Third point we've seen, we've seen is that nowhere else in all of Paul's epistles does he mention confession of anything as a condition for justification, not to mention confession of Jesus as Lord. He never mentions that anywhere else. So why do we think that somehow public confession or telling your neighbor, telling your friend, telling somebody that you believed in Jesus is necessary for salvation? Fourth point that we saw is that Paul reiterates that justification is by faith alone in the first part of Romans 10.10. He says, "...for with the heart one believes unto righteousness." How do you gain righteousness? You believe with your heart, and the heart there stands for the, ma- the, the mind, the thinking part of the soul. Now, fifth point of review is what salvation means. In Romans, it's distinct from justification. As we've seen in Romans places like Romans five, ten and 11, ten through eleven, it's often future to justification. In Romans five, ten and eleven, Paul says, Having already been justified, we shall be saved. See, two different concepts in time. Justification is over with and done and completed in the past, and because of that we shall be saved in the future. It's like magic. It's that old problem. If you don't plug it in, it won't work. Okay, Romans 13.11 says the same thing. In Romans 13.11, Paul says, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer. It's near, but it's not here. It's not here right now. It's just nearer. Then when we first believed. But what happened when we first believed? We were justified. And every day we get closer to salvation. So he's clearly not using the word salvation as a synonym for gaining eternal life. The reason you have that confused look on your face, sort of the deer-in-the-headlights look, is because you've just heard that idiom in American Christianity so much that salvation equals phase really just what we call, refer to as phase one. So as we pointed out last time in Romans ten one, when Paul says that his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, Paul is saying something that's a lot more than, I want all my Jewish friends and everybody else I'm related to that's Jewish to go to heaven. He's saying a lot more than that. To reduce it to a discussion on justification for the Jews that they'll get to heaven Is to basically eviscerate or gut the passage of its real significance. He's not just talking about, I want all my, all the Jews I know to go to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He uses that word salvation. So we have our chart on the three ways in which saved is used. Sometimes people call this the three three tenses of salvation. That's a common way today to refer to this, or the three stages or three phases of salvation. Phase one is justification takes place at an instant in time When a person believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, when they realize Jesus is the solution, that by trusting in him they have forgiveness of sins, there are different aspects to the salvation offer. Believing any of those are related to Jesus gets you justified in an instant by faith alone. We're saved from the penalty of sin. There's that word saved. But after that, If we grow and mature as believers, the technical term is sanctification. It's a term related to our spiritual life, our experiential sanctification, where we are saved from the power of sin. So when you see the word saved in Scripture, you have to say, are we talking about getting saved from the penalty of sin, or are we talking about being saved from the power of sin? And in some places, like Romans 13 that I just mentioned, It's saved from the presence of sin. We will be saved in the future. So it's important to distinguish those, but always remember this. I don't think this point has always been made clear. You can't be saved from the power of sin, and you can't be saved from the presence of sin if you haven't first been saved from the penalty of sin. You have to be justified before phase two or phase three can develop. Now, continuing the review, six point, only Romans eleven eleven mentions the salvation of the Gentiles. And it, if you read that passage, as you read some of these passages, you say, well, I can see that that might mean justification. Sure, you can read anything into a passage, but if you're doing appropriate, correct exegesis, we don't, the answer is, that, well, does that meaning work here? That's never the way you do it it's how is the word used how are words used by this author within this context in order to get the meaning out of the passage not to read it into the passage so in romans 11 if everywhere else around here salvation refers to some kind of deliverance then what kind of deliverance would apply to the gentiles and back in romans 1 Verses 18 to 32, there's the the discussion of what happens throughout human history as people have gone negative to God's revelation of himself. And as a result, God has brought a series of judgments upon the human race. And those are outlined there, and those are upon Gentiles. And that is the wrath of God that is being revealed against the human race. So by trusting in God and calling upon him we can gentiles too can be delivered from from this from this this judgment and this is brought out even in our passage in Romans 10 verse 12 where after paul talks about and quotes from Joel 232 whoever believes on him will not be put to shame he then explains that listen very carefully he says for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. At that point, he's taking what he has said, and he's making an application that takes it to both Jews and Gentiles. Up to that point, he's been focusing on the Jews. But in verse 12, he says, see, this doesn't apply just to Jews. It doesn't apply just to eschatological deliverance of Israel at the end times. It also applies to Gentiles. And Gentiles can be delivered from the present judgment of God, not not in time judgment but present judgment of God if they if they turn to God for deliverance so point 6 emphasizes that it's consistent to see all these passages in the same way so when we put all this together Romans 10:1 is not a limited expression of Paul's desire that Jews get justified Because that ignores everything else he's been saying about the remnant in Romans nine. His quote from Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, and part of that verse is quoted again when we get down to, um, when we get down to verse eleven. All this connects. Sometimes, as I read this passage and I get into it more and more each time I study it, I, I, I just wonder: Do other pastors take as much time? to go back to the original context of all these quotes, Paul's quoting has has an allusion or quotation from an Old Testament passage in every other verse just about. And if you don't go back to see what those original contexts are discussing, how in the world can you figure out what's going on in this particular passage? And I say that because I remember for years having discussions with other close friends as we were wrestling with trying to figure out the interpretation of Romans 10, 9, and 10. And it took us years before we were going back and digging through and really coming to grips with all these Old Testament quotations. It's not something you're de- de- necessarily taught in seminary, and it's not something that you, you get very easily. But it is very important. So when we come to ten one, the salvation we're talking about is the same salvation Paul talks about in one sixteen, and it ultimately talks about the the total package of what God provides for us in terms of deliverance from the wrath of God today and from eternal judgment in the future. So Romans ten one, Paul's prayer is that his that Israel for Israel is that they be justified. I mean that they be saved. And not simply justified. And then in verse 2 and 3, we saw that the problem with Israel is, especially in verse 3, is that they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They think they can get there on their own, ignoring the Old Testament teaching in Isaiah 60, uh, 64, that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And then we move on to Romans ten four where he talks about the fact that Christ is the end of the law, and we saw this is an important word, telos, indicating the fulfillment or the goal of the law, and that because Jesus is the uh, goal of the law, the law has come to an end, as stated in numerous other passages As a basis for experiential righteousness. He's not talking about justification righteousness at this point. This is all about what saved and, and that's important. It's the focal point here has to do with more than justification. It's talking about phase two deliverance, phase two salvation. That's critical to understand this passage. We're not talking about how to get eternal life. We're talking about the present-time experience of the richness of God's grace in delivering us from living in the fallen world. And that's being applied not only to Israel, but also to Gentiles. So uh, the law is no longer related to justification, I mean, excuse me, no longer related to sanctification, but it has been replaced. Now, we. this is where we stopped last time. Now, this is a really interesting and one of those fun little passages to study because there's a series of quotes that are taken out of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. And if you're really interested, you will turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, 12 to 14, so that there can be a comparison. But I know that's hard to do when you're sitting there in your lap and you've got to flip back and forth in your Bible. And it's hard to do that kind of uh, a comparison. So I'll put the chart up on the screen. But first, let's look at these verses in context. He doesn't quote directly from the Masoretic, what we now know, the Masoretic text. His quotes are coming out of the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's why you see some, some differences. The other reason you see some differences is because he is, he's sort of cherry picking the phrases and sentences he wants to focus on because he's not saying that this is a fulfillment one to one of, of, of the Deuteronomy 30 passage. He is showing that, that making an application that the principle of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30 verses uh, through uh, 11 through 14 is the same today as it was then. And that is that divine revelation is as available to you right now as much as it was to the Jews in the wilderness. In fact, maybe even more so because you have the Internet and you're sitting there with your smartphone or your iPad or your computer or whatever and you can pull anything up just like that. So we have more Bible truth available to us today than in any other period of human history. We also have more biblical falsehood or false teaching about the Bible than we've ever had before in human history. You can go out and go to all kinds of websites on the internet with all kinds of different Christian teaching that'll just confuse you more than anything anything else. But part of learning involves confusion sometimes. It's out of confusion comes clarity after a while. So Romans 10.6 says, but the righteousness of faith speaks this way, that is the righteousness from faith. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 30. He says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven. And then he's making an application, that is, to bring Christ down from above. So the the point that Deuteronomy 30 is making is about revelation. The ultimate way in which God has revealed himself to us is not through the written word, but the living word. The Lagos, the the eternal Word, the eternal second person of the Trinity, so he's making an application that the real word that is so close to the Jews in the wilderness is the living Word, the living Lagos that is Christ and he's saying but 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 you don't need to say the word needs to come down from heaven because he's going to say it's already here or don't ask who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? That is, what does the text say? The word is near you, in your word, mouth and in your heart. Now, pause that thought a minute. Romans ten nine and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What are the two body parts that he talks about there? Mouth and heart. What's he say in this quote in verse 8? He says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word or the, here I translate that, the message related to faith which we preach. The point that he's making here is very simple. He goes back to the Old Testament illustration that here were the Jews in the wilderness coming out of the wilderness, the Exodus generation has died off, now Moses is talking to the conquest generation, and he's warning them that at some future time there is going to be judgment on Israel because they're going to go apostate, and they're going to be so apostate that God is going to remove them uh, from the land completely because they, are, they reject God's word. And that's the point of of, of verse 14 in Deuteronomy 30, verse 8 here. The word was near them, but they rejected it. And that's why Israel again finds themselves under judgment at Paul's time. Is because they've rejected the revelation that God has given them, which he's already applying in the context to Christ as the ultimate uh, revelation of God. Now... I tried to get this as big as I could so people could see it. Romans ten six through eight is on the left column. Romans, I mean Deuteronomy thirty eleven to fourteen is on the right column, and I've underlined the the direct quotations as you see the comparison. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty eleven introduces what Paul is saying. He's, he is in, in the I mean, excuse me. Deuteronomy thirty eleven is stating what Moses said. As he goes to the Jews in Deuteronomy 30, and he says, this is what's necessary in order for God to return you to the land and for that discipline to be removed. See, the focal point of Deuteronomy 30 is on a future restoration of the Jews to the land. And this is expressed very clearly in, in um, at the beginning when he says, now it shall come to pass... When all these things, that's all the judgments that are listed in chapter 29, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind or you recall them, among the nations where God has sent you. So when you're scattered among all the nations, and you're in the United States, and you're in Canada, and Mexico, and Argentina, and Brazil, and the Philippines, and Japan, and China, and India, and Russia, and Poland, and Germany, and you're scattered throughout the whole world, and you recall what the word of God has said, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. Now, when does this occur? It occurs at the end of the tribulation period. This is talking about the second return when the Jews are brought back to the land as a regenerate people and the land is restored to them. Now, in Isaiah 11.11, God says about that return, I will bring you back a second time. When's the first time? Well, in the context of Isaiah 11.11, it says, I will bring you back from all the earth a second time. When did the first time occur? Well, some people might think it occurred when they returned from the Babylonian captivity in 538. But they didn't come back from Egypt. They didn't come back from from Turkey. They didn't come back from Rome. They didn't come back from primarily any place but Babylon. And only about forty five or forty eight thousand came back with Zerubbabel the first time. There wasn't a large return back to the land during the Second Temple period. There were still a huge number of Jews living in the diaspora, but they had there had to be a return under God's plan, so there would be a nation in the land to whom the Messiah could come. And there had to be an, an, an authority structure in the land so that they could choose to accept or reject the Messiah. But most of the Jews at that time, probably 70, 60 to 70% of the Jews at the time that Jesus came, lived in the Diaspora. They weren't back in Israel. We have almost 50%, probably about 48% of Jews in the world today, live in Israel. The greatest percentage of Jews... in in the world today, live in Israel for the first time. I mean, we're this close, within two percentage points, of having 50% of the Jews in the world living in in, in the land God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That hasn't happened since 722 B.C. That's significant, I think, very significant. It doesn't mean that the rapture is tomorrow, but it doesn't mean it's not. Okay, so what does Paul say? He quotes in verse 6, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. This is from Deuteronomy 30.12, where Moses says, It's not in heaven. See, don't, don't be looking off into heaven for something. You've got it right here is his point. Uh, he says, Don't, don't look at the, at the heavens and say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? In Romans 10.7, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30, and he says, who will descend into the abyss? That's bringing it in from the septuagint, a little different wording. But the point in verse 13 was, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it, looking for it in some distant location. Verse Romans 10.8, quoting from Deuteronomy 30.14, states, the word is very near you. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to say, you know, it's so difficult. I just can't get to it. Maybe if I'd gone to heaven, I'd find it. Maybe if I'd gone into the abyss, I'd find it. But, But Paul is just quoting Moses and saying, you don't have to look for it. God's revelation is at hand. It's right there. It's right next to you. It's available. It's right there in your mouth and in your heart. All you have to do is accept it and do it. So that's the background. Understanding mouth and heart comes out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, and it's related to the Jews turning to God when? For individual justification? No. For national or corporate deliverance at the end of the tribulation period. So the point that i 'm making that that you have to get to is by studying the context of Romans ten and the context of the quotes you know right away that 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 neither Moses nor Paul were talking about how to get into heaven. all these contexts are talking about how Israel will ultimately be delivered by God and restored to the land and realize all of the promises and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant so now we are at Romans. Ten, nine, and ten, which begins that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if you look at this, if you think salvation here is getting into heaven, then two conditions are presented. The first is you have to believe in your heart that Jesus is is, is uh, that believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So if you haven't confessed with your mouth out loud that Jesus is Lord, then you're not going to get to heaven. Well, what about somebody who just is a deaf mute? That's not politically correct, but I've never been accused of being politically incorrect. So um, anyway... You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. These are not conditions for getting justified. This is talking about something completely different. And it's explained further. See that first word in verse 10, 4? That indicates an explanation. The statement or principle is made related to this deliverance, this salvation, in verse 9. The explanation comes in verse 10 with the heart a person believes. Belief is a matter of thought. It's not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of thought. Uh, it's a matter of accepting something as true. The result is when you believe or trust in Christ as Savior, you are you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and God declares you to be justified. With the mouth you confess, resulting in something different. Salvation. So let's tear it apart a little bit. It starts off with a what is a third class condition in the Greek. Greek talks about if clauses and expresses them grammatically four different ways. The first indicates if and we're going to assume the condition is true. The second is if and we assume the condition that we're setting up isn't true. And the third is that it could be either way. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, and the, I, but you m- more likely will, but there's still a, a chance of pure contingency there. And so that's how it's used here. It's a third-class condition. If you confess, because you might not, and so if you don't, you don't get the results. But now we get to look at that word, confess, a familiar word to everyone who has been in this congregation for very long. Homologeo doesn't mean to say the same thing as it is used to indicate confession in a courtroom setting but it doesn't always mean confession see according to Bauer-Arn Gingrich there are other terms that English words that could be used to translate confession depending on the context admit or acknowledge i like to use those two words as synonyms for confession because confession is one of those holy words that people use all the time and they don't really it loses its meaning because it's too familiar and when we say you just have to admit your sin to god that that all of a sudden seems to clarify things a little bit but it also means to declare something and sometimes it's used with a sense of praising god because we're declaring what he has done or admitting or acknowledging what he has done. So you see how the word group works together. But if you do a simple word substitution here and you use the word declare and translate it that if you declare with your mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord or the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is a public declaration that Jesus is... God, He's divine. The word Lord there doesn't simply mean master. It goes back to the fact that this is a reference to uh, the fact that that the Lord Jesus is God. The Lord represents His deity. Jesus is humanity, and Christ His role as the Messiah. Now, look at the the, the confession of your mouth is parallel to a phrase that's found in verse fourteen. In verse 14, we we read, um, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord represents the same idea, the same concept as confessing or declaring with your mouth the Lord Jesus in verse 9. It's the same thing. Calling upon the name of the Lord is a declaration. And so all of this fits together. Now, the next thing we ought to do in terms of analysis is to recognize that Romans 10, 9, and 10 is structured according to a chiasm. A chiasm, the word chi there represents the Greek letter X. And so if you just look at one side of the X, you see a line going in and then going out. And this is how you structure that in an argument. Sometimes you can have uh, 8, 10, 12 points. I've seen, two, I've seen chiastic diagrams of two or three chapters in the Scripture because it's a, in, in a time when we didn't have boldface type and italics and you didn't have underlining and all these other things to, to visually emphasize uh, different things, then you did it with your literary organization. And so in a chiasm, the focal point is on the two parallel things that are at the center of the chiasm. And here that would be uh, statement B and B prime. So eight, the A line, the first line, says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. The fourth line, which is parallel to it, so we call it A prime, which is the one at the bottom, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So A and A prime mirror one another b and b prime mirror one another now this is where it gets so important to pay attention and look at the details b says and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved the mirror to that b prime says for with the heart one believes unto righteousness Now, let's look at those two concepts. You will be saved is parallel to believing unto righteousness. Now, it's real easy to think that believing unto righteousness here just might be justification. And sometimes I've said that, and I've really misspoken, because that's what I've heard a lot. When I got back into this the other day, I said, you know, I think I've said this wrong. It's easy to, to slip on this. This chiastic diagram is so critical. In, verse, in the B statement, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that phase one or phase two salvation? That's phase two. If that's phase two, then believing in your heart into righteousness has got to be what? Phase two. Which means we're talking about experiential righteousness here not justification righteousness. and, And which fits the context of Romans. Paul quit talking about justification righteousness in 5.11. How many times have I said that? That means everything after 5.11 is talking about something related to the spiritual life, phase two, sanctification or glorification. Now, when we break down this parallel here, you will be saved and unto righteousness are parallel concepts. They're synonymous. If you will be saved, if saved never means phase one in Romans, in Paul's terminology in Romans, then it has to refer to phase two. And therefore, the righteousness of the second parallel clause must also be referring to phase two. Now, it's real easy to miss that. But when you do, the, when you sit down, those of you who are doing the Bible study methods class on, on Sunday night, this is where detailed structural diagrams really help us see what's going on in the text. And it's real easy when you're familiar with something in English just to read past it. I do it, you do it, we all do it. So, that's the conclusion. Since saved is phase two, Righteousness must also be phase two. Now, I'm not the only one who's made this observation. There are a number of other people who have arrived at this conclusion, but we tend not to be in the majority. But we all tend to be people who hold to a free grace salvation. And this is, this is a, a common view, but it is not a majority view. But it fits the text very well. And so in Romans 10, 9 and 10, what Paul is talking about is the same kind of thing that is being talked about in in Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, the people who are being talked about there are people who are already, at the end of the tribulation period, are people who are about to call upon the name of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. They're already justified. They're already believers. And so the context uh, is talking about believers who are growing in spiritual maturity and continuing to obey God and realizing that in their, in their spiritual life. So Romans 10, 10, 11, then in the next verse is a further explanation. That the, the for the Paul says for the Scripture says whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Why won't you be put to shame? Because you'll realize that ultimate deliverance eschatologically. Because we're justified, we will be saved. So when I when I talk about saved, once again, I don't want you to think that there's a total dichotomy between being saved, phase two and phase three, and 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 being justified. Because what did I say? You can't get phase two and phase three unless you got phase one. It, it, save is used in a, in a full-orbed pregnant sense in these, in these passages, but the emphasis is on the phase two and phase three aspect, not the getting justified aspect. Now, Romans 10.11 is quoting from the last part of Isaiah 28.16. Now, Isaiah 28.16 is what Paul quotes in Romans nine, uh, twenty-seven, and um, nine twenty-seven and, and uh, twenty-eight. So this is important to connect all of these different little uh, little dots together. Oh, excuse me, in Romans uh, nine thirty-three, I just couldn't see it. Just my glasses. Uh, Behold, I lay in a z- Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's that last verse. So, what Paul was talking about at the end, at that very end of Romans, uh, 933, he connects the dot for us. He, it seems like, well, how did he go through what he's saying in Romans ten one through 10? Well, in verse 11, he pulls us right back to where he was at the end of, um, of chapter thirty, I mean, of verse thirty-three. Now, in Romans twenty-eight sixteen, in the Masoretic text, which your English Bible is translated from, it reads, "Whoever believes will not act hastily." The word there in the Hebrew is the word that's the left word at the bottom there, "hosh," and it should be translated "be agitated." You won't be upset. Your stability is in God. He's the one who's going to deliver you. The Septuagint translated it. Uh, whoever believes will not be ashamed. So there's a textual problem there, and many people, and I believe it's correct, that the Septuagint has the correct reading, and perhaps um, the Masoretic text was corrupted at this point and used the word chos, which is very similar. The first letter could easily be mistaken if it was misread, if the bait and the uh, Vav Uh, in the second word, were too close together, it would uh, perhaps resemble the chosh. But the Septuagint probably represents a better reading there, and it should be translated, whoever believes, whoever trusts in God won't be ashamed. He will deliver us. And then he goes on to say, for there's no no distinction. Now, this is where he applies the principle to both Jew and Gentile. Up to this point, the application has been only in the direction of the Jews and their future deliverance corporately, which has to do not with their individual justification, but their corporate deliverance. So that takes us back again to where we have to say that whatever else is going on here, nothing in this passage really is focusing on how to get get eternal life. So he, he then introduces, now... He goes on to say in verse 13, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why is that important? It's important because in Matthew 23, just before the upper room discourse, Jesus comes and he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing, and then after that, I don't have a slide on. After that, he says, "And I will not return until you call upon the name of the Lord." So, what has to happen before Jesus returns as the as Israel's Messiah to deliver Israel from oppression? is that Israel has to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that's a whole other interesting study, which we might do one day, but calling upon the name of the Lord is not synonymous to getting justified. It is the action in Scripture, if you go all the way through the Old Testament and New Testament passages, calling upon the name of the Lord is what believers do in order to be delivered from their present circumstances of adversity. It's calling upon God to come and rescue them and to deliver them from whatever it is that they're going through. And you find that terminology many times uh, in the Psalms. Now, what Israel has to do at the end times is they have to confess or declare their sin before God. Uh, Leviticus 26, 40 to 42 states this, this is at the end after all the discussion of the five cycles of discipline. And at the fifth cycle of discipline, the Jews are taken out of the land, and they're removed from the land, and the land is under Gentile domination through the times of the Gentiles. And and now in verse 40, God is going to state the conditions for restoration to the land as God promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in terms of the the, the, the messianic kingdom. He says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers... With their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. So there's a condition. They have to admit their guilt before God. And they have to turn to God. This is the same terminology that's used in Deuteronomy 30, when they turn back to me. Now, that is expressed in Romans 10.13 corporately when they call on the name of the Lord. And here, Paul says, for who, quoting Joel 2.32, says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from Joel 2.32. Now, let's turn to Joel 2. We've gone through this many times. If you were with me through the Revelation series or Daniel series, you listen to those, then you, um, you will recognize this. Joel 2.32 is one of those great passages describing the end times. And in Joel 2.32, we have the end of the tribulation period, and the time is the day of the Lord, the time when Jesus Christ returns to rescue Israel from possible destruction, potential destruction uh, from the Antichrist. This section is also quoted by, from Joel 2.32 by, by Peter on the day of Pentecost, simply to show that the kinds of events that happen afterwards – represent the actions of the Spirit just as the actions on the day of Pentecost represent the actions of the the Spirit. So in Joel 2.32, Joel 2, we talk about the day of the Lord and the judgment that's, that's coming and what God will do to restore the land to Israel. After the day of the Lord, we read... And it's interesting, there's also a quote there at the end of verse 27, my people shall never be put to shame. Paul may be adding that idea, that, the, the idea of those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Same idea. Verse 28, he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. This is in the millennial kingdom and also my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the lord that's describing what the calamity of the whole time of the tribulation uh, in time of the tribulation the battle of armageddon and it shall come to pass at the time that that the of uh, the blood and the fire and the pillars of smoke and the sun turned into darkness and moon into blood it shall come to pass at that time that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved so joel, joel 232 is talking about what happens at the end of the tribulation period at the end of Daniel 70th week as Christ is going to come to deliver Israel and he's going to deliver the remnant now this happens in the campaign, because Armageddon is not a battle, it is a campaign, a military campaign, and there are actually eight stages to the Battle of Armageddon. Now, if you look up here in the upper left, number, where the, you have the first circle here, number one, that's really the valley of Har Megiddo. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain. And there's a huge tell or mountain built over the ancient city of Megiddo. And so far, they've discovered around 27 or 28 layers of civilization at Megiddo. During the time of Solomon, it was one of his great uh, cities where he had a major fortress and he stored his chariots and soldiers were there. And it overlooks this huge, huge valley. And that valley moves from the southeast up to the northwest and the northwest end of that valley ends right here at mo- the modern city of Haifa, which is the only deep water port in the eastern part of the Mediterranean. When you're standing up there on the escarpment of Mount Carmel, the same Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire, and you look down on Haifa, you see the ocean come in, and this is where the U.S. fleet comes in to, uh, uh, to refuel. It's the only deep water port there, and you can just see that this is where the, the naval ships of the Antichrist come in to offload troops and equipment and using this huge valley that extends all down through this area here to the southeast and uses that as his staging area, his logistical base for his fight against uh, Babylon and against Israel. And so that stage one is gathering the armies of the Antichrist for this great battle that's going to, that's going to take place. And then the second thing that happens chronologically is he's going to destroy the seat of power in Babylon. The third thing that happens is he's going to attack Jerusalem. Jerusalem is number three down here. He's going to attack Jerusalem and Jerusalem will fall. Believers have already evacuated uh, the believing Jews have already evacuated. There is a remnant of Jews, though, that, are, that didn't listen to Jesus, and they didn't leave, but they're still saved, and they're now under siege in Jerusalem. The majority, though, leave, and they head south across uh, the Judean desert, cross uh, south of the Dead Sea into the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan in the area of Petra and Basra. And under the fourth thing that happens, the armies of the Antichrist then trap them down in that uh, canyon-type mountainous territory at Petra, and they're, they're surrounded. At this point, Israel as a national entity now, the remnant, calls upon the Messiah to deliver them. They call upon the name of the Lord. Now, they're already believers. They're already justified, but now they're coming together as a nation, and they call on the name of the Lord. They recognize corporately, nationally, uh, Jesus as their Messiah. Call upon him to deliver them. This is when Jesus returns, rescues them from the uh, surrounding armies of the Antichrist here, uh, you have this number six here represents the uh, coming of the Antichrist, and then they head back north with the tribe of Judah in the van leading the way with the Messiah heading back to Jerusalem to rescue those trapped in Jerusalem, and they end up in the in the final fight in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the the, the Kidron Valley that runs between. The Mount of Olives, and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rescue them, defeat the Antichrist and the false prophet, then they're going to have a victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. Now, here are just a couple of pictures. This is a satellite picture from the southwest looking northeast. Jerusalem is up here just off the screen to the upper left. It's only 40 miles from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea at this point. And then, so they're going to come down uh, through Bethlehem across the hill country of Judah, headed south, and then they get down into this wasteland, and they cross over south of the Dead Sea into the mountainous area of ancient Edom, which is where Basra is located, and that is very close to the ancient city of Petra. Now, how do we know this? In Jeremiah forty-nine thirteen to 14, we read, For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror. There's going to be a battle there. Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cities will become perpetual ruins. I have heard a message from the Lord and an envoy is sent among the nations saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. So there's a battle there. Then, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return, and this is stated in Isaiah 63, 1 through 3. Who is this who comes from Edom? This is written from the perspective of his having won the battle, and now he's bringing the Jews that he's rescued back into the land. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors? Actually, it's garments of blood, garments, red garments, Uh, This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? See, he's dripping blood from the victorious battle over the armies of the Antichrist. And then we can read down to what I have underlined here, where he says, I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled in my garments, and and I stained all my raiment. In Isaiah 34, 6, we read, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. That hasn't occurred historically. This is all a description of what happens during the time of this last uh, Armageddon campaign. Now, here's a couple of pictures just showing you the lovely lovely territory coming south out of Bethlehem across the Judean desert. I remember the first time we took a trip to Israel, we'd gone over to Petra. We drove south about two hours to come back at lot and to cross over on at Aqaba. Uh, and it was about the 26th or 27th of, Ju- of June, And there was a a a Scirocco wind blowing across the Judean desert right in our face. You have to walk between two cyclone fences about maybe 30 yards apart, and you've got to walk about a 100 yards from the Jordanian side to the Israeli side, dragging your baggage behind you, walking into this 15, 20, 25-mile-an-hour wind. The temperature was 117, and it was like walking into a hairdryer you know 117 with a wind chill of 135 lovely territory that they're going to have to escape through but it's also very difficult terrain to follow somebody and to attack them just think about what that's going to be like lovely terrain as you head down into into petra so this is what the scenario is when we look at at this this the passage there in Romans 10. Romans 10 is talking about this future deliverance when they call upon the name of the Lord. Now next time we're going to come back and we'll wrap up the rest of the chapter as we go forward because here there's going to be an application to why Israel has rejected uh, the gospel and we'll get into those passages in in the last part before we get over to chapter 11. So, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that this deliverance is not just for Israel, but deliverance from your wrath in time is only by trusting in Christ, growing and walking in, in, by means of the Spirit in this age. And only in that way are we delivered in the sense of phase two salvation and ultimately phase three salvation. Help us to understand these things and realize that, that the, the issue that, that is being talked about here is not just trusting Christ for eternal life, but after we become saved, trusting Him in terms of uh, a daily life, walking by the Holy Spirit and pursuing spiritual maturity and serving you with our life. And only in that way do we recognize a full deliverance as we experience our our salvation in phase two. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.